Luke 13. Luke 13, 6 through 9. John Bunyan has a, um, a whole book on the parable of the fig tree. There are sermons. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Dear Lord, bless this lecture. Help us to learn from the preaching of John Bunyan and from the kind of men we ought to be by thy grace and only by thy grace as we preach the gospel to the whole man from the whole heart based on the whole word proclaiming the whole Christ in Jesus name. Amen. Today we're witnessing the erosion of biblical preaching on most continents on an unprecedented scale. In his definitive biography of George Whitfield, Arnold Delamar called for biblical preachers who would be, quote, men mighty in the scriptures their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, and holiness of God, and their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the Master's approbation before the judgment seat. They will be men who preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes. Well, that's not a description of most ministers today, I'm afraid. And yet, in the past, it was a description of many men. And in every generation, God does raise up men who storm the gates of hell with the simplicity of heaven's wisdom. And certainly one of those men was John Bunyan, the tinker. He stands out as one of the best Puritan preachers that God had given that rich age of the church. Charles II once asked John Owen, the prince of preachers, the Prince of Puritans, why he went to hear the preaching of the unlearned tinker of Bedford. Owen's response was, and remember Owen is called the Prince of the Puritans, the greatest theologian of them all. May it please your majesty, could I possess the tinker's abilities for preaching, I would willingly relinquish all my learning. Now that may be a bit of a hyperbole, but I think Owen meant it. At 27 years of age, in 1655, at the request 
of several brethren in his local church, John Bunyan began to preach to various congregations in Bedford, England, while he himself was still a beginner in grace, still struggled with doubts for his own eternal state. Of that early preaching, he says, the terrors of the law and guilt for my transgressions lay heavily on my conscience. I often went in chains to preach to them in chains and carried that fire in my own conscience that I persuaded them to beware of. That was Bunyan's beginning. Hundreds, however, came to hear him, which genuinely astonished him. His biographer, Ola Winslow, writes, incredulous at first that God would speak through him to the heart of any man, Bunyan presently concluded it might be so, and his success became a reassurance. Anne Arnott, another biographer, says that Bunyan was a sinner saved by grace who preached to other sinners from his own needy experience. I have been sent as one to them from the dead, he said. I had not preached long before some began to be touched by the word, to be greatly afflicted in their minds at the apprehension of the greatness of their sin and their need for Jesus Christ. But within two years of beginning preaching, Bunyan found full freedom in Christ. Full freedom in Christ. He was walking through a field one day and God just impressed upon him that all his righteousness was in heaven, in Jesus. And that's all he needed. And he had the same kind of breakthrough that Luther had when he saw the reality of Romans 1, 17. And Bunyan's preaching changed instantly. He began to lift up Christ in every sermon. Gordon Wakefield, another biographer, said it this way. He began to preach Christ in his offices, in the whole range of what Jesus could do for the human soul and for the world. Christ is a saving alternative to the bogus securities of getting and spending or the philosophies of godless self-interest. And in consequence of this, Bunyan could say, God led me into something of the mystery of personal union with Christ. And I came to preach this, that union with Christ was the heart of all reformed spirituality. Five years later, 1660, Bunyan is preaching in a farmhouse where he's arrested on the charge of preaching without official rights from the king. Now Bunyan was certainly no rebel, no politician. The Bedfordshire gentry appear to have regarded his preaching as dangerous rabble-rousing, they called it that fanned the discontent that many felt with the restored regime and church. Sir Henry Chester, a local justice, put his case against Bunyan even more strongly. He's a pestilential fellow, he said. There's not another such fellow in all the country of England. So Bunyan was thrown into prison, where he wrote prolifically 30 to 40 of his 60 books and made shoelaces to support his blind daughter, his other children, his wife, in prison for twelve and a half years, longer than any other Puritan. Prior to his arrest, Bunyan had married a godly young woman named Elizabeth. She pleaded repeatedly 
for his release based on her care of four small children and a recent miscarriage. The presiding judge said, no problem. Just get your husband to stop preaching and I will release him today. And she replied, my Lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as his tongue can speak. Bunyan offered to hand over the notes of all his sermons to the judicial authorities to assure them he was not being seditious in any way. But it was of no avail. Throughout his 12 and a half years in jail, Bunyan maintained a zealous love for preaching. He said this, When by the good hand of my God I had for five or six years together without interruption freely preached the blessed gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the devil, that old enemy of man's salvation, took his opportunity to inflame the hearts of his vassals that at last I was laid out for by warrant of justice and taken and committed to prison. When asked by one judge if he would stop preaching, if he released him from prison, Bunyan responded, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. On another occasion he said, neither guilt nor hell nor anything in my life could take me off my work of preaching. I could not be content in life unless I found in the exercise, be found in the exercise of my gift. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. And yet Bunyan suffered in prison. He said there were times he could scrape the skin off of his body. He was so longing to be back home, to be with his wife, especially to be with his blind daughter. He later wrote that the word of God while he was in prison was like a burning fire in his heart. He said, I was engaged to not flinch a hair's breadth from preaching, no matter what it cost me. It is my duty to stand to his word, whether he would ever look upon me or no, or ever deliver me from prison or no, or even ever save me at last. Wherefore I thought, I will leap off of the ladder, even blindfold into eternity, sink or swim, come heaven, come hell, Lord Jesus, if thou wilt but let me venture forth for thy name again. In 1661, and from 1668 to 1672, for five years, there were certain jailers that permitted Bunyan to leave prison late at night to preach in the woods and in barns. Because the, the jailer said, whenever you leave, the authorities never come to see if you're there. And whenever you're here, they're always coming to check up to make sure you're here. So these two jailers, one in 1661 and the other one for four years later, said, we trust your God that he will protect you, even though we will be at risk if the authorities discover we've let you out. Instead of Bunyan's midnight preaching, that he was one of the best church planners in all of England, a number of churches began through his midnight preaching. When Bunyan finally did get released, his popularity as a preacher did not wane in his later years. Wherever he would preach, there would be gathered up to 3,000 people to hear him preach. 1,200 on weekdays and dark winter mornings at 7 o'clock 
a thousand or more. Bunyan preached to men's hearts as well as to their minds. He was personally acquainted experientially with so many spiritual experiences. Such a rich infusion of Jesus Christ was poured into his soul by the Holy Spirit. In his introduction to Bunyan's Some Gospel Truths Opened, the, the introducer John Burton said, Bunyan has through grace taken three heavenly degrees, to wit, the degree of union with Christ, the degree of the anointing of the Spirit, and the degree of preaching. Bunyan's love for preaching was not confined to words. He was passionate in his zeal to the congregation. He loved preaching, he loved preparing for preaching, and he loved the souls of the people to whom he preached. He said in my preaching, I have actually been in pain and travail to bring forth children unto God. Neither could I be satisfied unless fruits did appear upon my work. If someone fell back after he was blessed under one of Bunyan's sermons, Bunyan said, their loss meant more to me than if one of my own children had died. So loved I their soul. Bunyan was overwhelmed with the greatness of a soul, a never-dying soul, traveling to eternity. He wrote a book called The Greatness of the Soul. If there was ever a man called to gospel ministry of preaching, it certainly was John Bunyan. When he was imprisoned, he spent the bulk of his time repackaging his preached sermons into books. Dozens of them. He was a man who understood the human heart. He understood the terror of God against his sin. But he also understood the love of Jesus Christ in the depths of his soul. He preached experientially to the heart. He aimed the arrow of his preaching at people's hearts. He said, I purposely seek in my preaching to deliver awakened souls to the understanding, the will, the affections, the reason, and the judgments of man. I preach to the whole man. Ola Winslow, another biographer, writes, Bunyan had the gift of being able to put emotional compulsion behind his words. He also knew how to bring the here and now of the urgency of eternity home to his hearers. He preached what he felt and longed for in his hearers based on the word of God. And I'd like to focus on three things about his preaching. Participatory, pleading, and Christ-exalting. Three aspects in which he excelled in preaching experientially. Participatory preaching, pleading preaching, Christ-exalting preaching. Bunyan believed that those listening to preaching should not just be spectators, but participants. To that end, he usually addressed his hearers very personally, almost always using the second person, you. 
He was also very illustrative and simple. The common people heard him gladly. He often used sanctified, imaginative takes on, on the scripture. For example, when he was preaching on uh, that the Father, all that the Father gave to Christ, shall come to him. John 6, 37. I'm not saying you should do this now. <laughs> but Bunyan said, he turned the words, shall come, into a character by that name, as he did with all those names in Pilgrim's Progress and Holy War. He uh, answers the objections, one by another, of all the trembling doubters who felt they weren't welcome with Jesus Christ. And he kept, he kept saying, well, Mr. Shellcom answers all this. Mr. Shellcom can raise you from this death. See, he, he drew them into the sermon. They felt like they were shaking hands with Mr. Shellcom. They were welcome to come. He wrote a whole book called, Welcome and Come to Jesus Christ. There's no end to examples I could give you of the directness of his preaching so that his people would be drawn into the sermon. Sometimes he impersonates people, talking with him or, or talking with a pastor or talking with the Apostle Peter, for example. When he preached from Acts 2, uh, Peter, he preached from the text, Repent every one of you, be baptized in his name for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he said, that's true of every one of you. Every one of you. Oh yes, you say. But I was one of them that plotted to take away his life. May I be saved by him? Peter says every one of you. But I was one of them that bear false witness against him. Is there grace for me? Peter says for every one of you. But I was one that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Peter says I'm to preach repentance and remission of sins to every one of you. But I was one of them that did spit in his face when he stood before his accusers. Is there room for me? For every one of you, says Peter. But I railed on him. I reviled him. I hated him. I rejoiced to see him mocked by others, you say. Can there be hopes for someone like me? For every one of you, says Peter, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. So, his preaching is powerfully personal. He had a way of showing people their sin, their misery, drawing them into the sermon to respond to the truth of sin and judgment as well as forgiveness and grace. And sometimes he'd talk to them so directly that they would feel that it was just God speaking directly to them. Listen to this. Poor sinner, will you not awake? Eternity is coming. God and his son, they're both coming to judge the world. And you're yet sleeping? Poor sinner that you are. Let me set the trumpet to your ear once again. The heavens will be shortly on burning flame. The earth and the works shall be burned up. And wicked men shall go into perdition. Do you hear me, sinner? Are you hearing me now? Sinner, be advised. Ask your own heart again. Say to your own soul, have I come to Jesus Christ? For upon this one question, am I come or am I not, hangs heaven and hell. In your case, if you can say I am come, and God shall approve that saying, happy, happy, happy are you. 
But if you are not come, what can make you happy? Yes, why, why can a man be happy that for his not coming to Jesus Christ for life, he must be damned forever in hell? Bunyan encouraged heart searching. He wouldn't let a listener be content to only hear words. He'd also present them with great hope. Great hope. Ah, friends, consider there is now hopes of mercy for the greatest sinner sitting here this morning. Christ holds mercy forth to you, to you personally. But one day it will be too late. When you die, now there are still servants, servants like me, that beseech you to accept of his grace. But if you lose the opportunity that's put into your hand, you yourself may beseech hereafter, but no mercy will be given you in that day. So you see, as a blacksmith knows he must strike the steel while it's hot, Bunyan demanded an immediate response in his sermons. He preached a sermon on today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. When he preached on the fig tree, he has this dialogue going back and forth between God the Father saying, cut down this fig tree. And Jesus Christ, being the fig tree owner, saying, no, Lord, no, Lord. Just one more year, just one more year. And then, then you cut it down. You can cut it down. And uh, then he turns to the sinner and says, do you hear the blows coming on your fig tree? Every sickness is a blow. It's a blow. And yet God's not taking you away. He's giving you one more opportunity, one more sermon to hear the gospel. Will you live or will you die? Will you come to Christ or will you perish forever? Oh sinner, hear the thud of the, of the axe against the tree of your life. G.I. Packer said, when he read that sermon, he felt like he, he, felt like he was the fig tree. And that's exactly what Bunyan wanted you to feel. Participatory preaching. But then there was, secondly, pleading preaching. Pleading preaching. Bunyan knew how to plead with sinners. He said, in my preaching, I try to outshoot the devil in his own bow. Outshoot the devil in his own bow. The devil has so many ways of keeping people away from Jesus, but I want to outshoot him. <laughs> and Bunyan sometimes painted terrible pictures as he pleaded with people to come to Christ. He impersonated God and Christ and the hell-bound sinner as he pleaded with the sinner to turn to Christ and live. Oh, here's a, here's a quote from the fig tree. Listen to this. Death, come smite me, this fig tree. And with all the Lord shakes the sinner and whirls you upon a sickbed and says, Take him, death. He has abused my patience and forbearance, not remembering that it should lead him to repentance. Death, fetch away this fig tree to the fire. Fetch this barren professor to hell. And death comes with grim looks into the chamber follows him to the bedside, begins to lay hands upon him, one smiting him with pains in his body, one with a headache, one with a heartache, one with a backache, one with shortness of breath, fainting, trembling of joints, almost all the symptoms of a man past all recovery. Death is tormenting the body. Hell is doing with the mind and conscience, striking it with pains, casting sparks of fire in thither, wounding with sorrows. And you then cry out to God, Lord, spare me. Spare me. No, says God. 
You've been a provocation to me these three years. You've bought no fruit at all. How many times have you disappointed me? How many seasons have you spent in vain? How many sermons and other mercies did I and my patience afford you? But to no purpose. Take him, death. And that's where Christ enters the picture and says, Oh, but one more year, one more year. And, oh, Bunyan could preach with pleading power, almost like no other. He said, if Satan will not rest for a moment in pleading with men's souls, preachers must not rest from their great duty to plead with men's souls. He says, I went for the space of two years, crying out against men's sins and their fearful state because of them. After the which, the Lord came into my own soul and comforted me through Christ. And then I began to plead with men to come to Jesus. To Jesus in his person, in his offices, in his relations, in his benefits. And then he talks about, oh, read, read, read the Jerusalem sinner saved. Where he talks about, in his sermons, about how he begs sinners to come to Jesus. He says, here's just one paragraph. Say when thou art upon thy knees, sinner. Lord, here is a Jerusalem sinner of the biggest size. One whose burden is of the greatest bulk and the heaviest weight. One who cannot stand long without sinking into hell, without thy supporting hand. I say... Put your own name in beside Mary Magdalene's name. Put your name in beside Manessa's name. That you may fare as the Magdalene and the Manessa sinners do. Because you too, Manessa-like sinner, are welcome with Jesus Christ. And then he knew how to preach experientially Christ. What Christ-exalting preaching he had. It's very moving, actually. Bunyan excels in preaching Christ. He says, O Son of God, grace was in all the tears. Grace came bubbling out of thy side with thy blood. Grace came forth with every word from thy sweet mouth. Grace came out where the whip smote thee, where the thorns pricked thee, where the nails and spears pierced thee, all because of my sins. But, O oh, blessed of God, grace is flowing from all thy wounds, unsearchable riches of grace, grace enough to make angels wonder, grace enough to make sinners truly happy, grace enough to astonish the devil of hell. Bunyan said this, I have known my preaching especially when I engage in preaching Christ as if an angel of God has stood at my back to encourage me, to press me on, say preach more, more, more of Jesus. Oh, it has been with such power and heavenly evidence upon my own soul that I did smartingly feel what I was preaching when I preached Christ. I labor to unfold him, to demonstrate him, to hasten him upon the conscience of the others. And I could not be content with saying, I believe and am sure. But methought I was more than sure. <laughs> if it be lawful to express myself of the f this way, of the fullness of Christ for sinners. And in this preaching of Christ, he would often just wax doxological. He'd just praise God in the midst of his sermons as if he's talking to God and impersonating God, talking back to him in front of his people. It's just amazing. Oh, grace. Oh, amazing grace. To see a prince and treat a beggar to receive an alms would be a strange sight. 
To see a king entreat a traitor to accept a mercy would be a stranger sight. But to see God, the living God of heaven and earth, entreating a hell-worthy sinner, and to hear Christ say, I stand at the door and knock with a heart full and a heaven full of grace to bestow upon him that opens, this is a sight that dazzles the very eyes of angels. Oh, will you not come to Christ? He knocks at your door. And ultimately, Bunyan has in mind that the saved will exalt Jesus Christ in glory forever. And he preaches often about that, about heaven and future glory. He says, Then we shall have perfect and everlasting visions of God and that blessed one, his Son, Jesus Christ. Then shall our will and affections be ever in a burning flame of love to God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Then will our conscience have that peace and joy that neither tongue nor pen of men or angels can express. Then will our memory be so enlarged to retain all things that happened to us in this world and how God made all work together for his glory and our good to the everlasting ravishing of our souls. Well, Bunyan taught that such exaltation is only possible by the Spirit's gracious ministry in believers' souls. By the Holy Spirit, he says, we come to see the beauty of Christ, without a sight of which we should never desire him, but should certainly live in neglect of him and perish. But by this Spirit, we are helped to praise him, to see beauty in his Son. By this blessed Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, and our hearts are directed into the love of the triune God. He's so warm, he's so sincere, he's so compelling in his invitations to take hold of such a glorious Savior. In the end of his sermon on Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the last invitation of the Bible, he says this, O oh, sinner, what do you say now after this sermon? How would you like to be saved? Does not your mouth water at the prospect of being saved? Does not your heart Twitter and flutter at the possibility of being saved. Oh, why not come then? The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This is a man who could say, I never did preach a sermon but that I did first smartingly feel. I wish I could say that. A man who was enamored with Christ from the bottom of his heart. A man who spoke simply, powerfully, alluringly. A man who combined participatory preaching and pleading preaching and Christ-exalting preaching to draw sinners to Christ. And yet a man who said, I can't convert anyone, but the Holy Spirit alone can do it. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of man that God uses so abundantly today. So, in the little time remaining me now, let me just talk just a few minutes about the second half of this lecture. Taking Bunyan, taking what I've said about experiential preaching, what kind of man, what kind of man must we be to be an experiential preacher? Several marks here. Number one, we must be earnest men. We must be earnest men. 
We must understand that preaching is the greatest activity ever to be done in this world. There's nothing like it. We must say with Paul, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. But we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We don't handle the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know, the Reformers and Puritans were all one on this, that preaching is an earnest thing. It's not a time for jokes. It's not a time for levity from the pulpit. Richard Baxter, of all the preaching in the world that I hate the most, I hate that preaching which first makes hearers laugh or to move their minds with tickling levity and affect them as stage plays used to instead of affecting them with holy reverence for the triune name of the Most High God. An earnest man, an earnest preacher strips away all masks. He's honest with the souls of men. Baxter says again, and you should read the Reformed, the Reformed Pastor by Baxter. It's so searching. In the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your own hearts before you go into the pulpit, that you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember, they must be awakened or damned under your sermon. And a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken drowsy sinners. Speak to your people as to men that must be awakened either here or in hell. Earnest preaching. That's a hallmark of experiential preaching, especially the discriminatory aspect. Second, ministers must be holy men of God. It's impossible to separate godly experiential living from godly experiential preaching. The holiness of a minister's heart is not merely an ideal. It is absolutely necessary Robert Murray McShane said, A congregation will seldom rise above the level of holiness of their own pastor. Their own pastor. How critical that we be men approved by God, entrusted with the gospel as holy men of God. And a holy man of God is one who's pulsating with the awakening power of the gospel. He's one who fears God more than men who esteems the smiles and frowns of God to be of greater weight and value than the smiles and frowns of men. A holy man of God is someone who loves the souls of his people, like Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, being affectionately desirous of you. We were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. I love the example of Spurgeon when he pleaded with his people. He said, I would love to shoot the gun of the gospel at you. And then if that doesn't work, I'll put myself in the gun and shoot myself at you. I just, I just want you saved so badly. I would lay down my life for you. That's, that's Bunyan. That's Spurgeon. That's, that's a holy man of God who preaches from the heart to the hearts of his people. And then a holy man of God is also one who has growing experience with God. Growing experience with God. He doesn't just regurgitate the same thing every Sunday. But um, uh, James Stalker, in his book on preaching, said it's like a man coming out of the greenhouse. You can smell the greenhouse upon him. So when a man ascends the pulpit, the congregation should be able to smell 
that he's been, he's been like a spy, one of the spies spying out the land of Canaan. But he's been a spy in the word of God. And he's bringing to his congregation the fresh grapes of Eshcol. And you can feel that this man of God is growing in the scriptures, growing in preaching, growing in love for the souls of his hearer. So there can be no disparity between the heart, the character, and the life of the man who is called to proclaim God's word together with the content of his message. The old divines used to say so often, Gardner Spring says in his book, The Power of the Pulpit, directly, a minister's life must be a transcript of his sermons. We must be what we proclaim. And that is the secret of so many men's success in church history. John Owen warns, if a man teach uprightly and walk crookedly, more will fall down in the night of his life than he built up in the day of his doctrine. And then too, the holy man of God is one who is, like Bunyan, dependent on the Holy Spirit, radically dependent. You know, we need the Holy Spirit twice for every sermon. We need him in the study. And then we need him on the pulpit. And even as we preach as if we could convert sinners, we are acutely aware we can never convert anyone. Thomas Watson put it this way, Ministers knock at the door of men's hearts, but it's the Spirit who comes with a key and opens the door. And yet we are aware as we preach... That this is God's primary means to save sinners. And it ought to be our cry. Our cry. With every sermon. Oh God, don't let this sermon go by without saving a soul. In the midst of us today. Or more than one. But so we ought to love the souls of the redeemed as well. And long for their maturation. And when our sermons are used to bless them. Our souls ought to rejoice as if it happened to our own soul. We, a holy man of God becomes like a father in the flock. The church family becomes your family. They become your sons and daughters. You care for their eternal well-being. But you need the Holy Spirit at every step of the way. And then, the holy man of God who preaches experientially is one who, who bathes his preaching in prayer. When you're preparing the sermons, I, I think you, you experience what I experience, certainly. It seems like every sermon, there's at least one spot, sometimes two or three, where I feel like I just don't, I just, I'm just not there. I just haven't mastered it. And, and, and worse, it hasn't mastered me. And I just have to get down on my knees and say, Lord, give me insight. Give me more deeper insight. Help me, Lord. Help me to bring what is the very best thing for my dear church people. And you see, for the Reformers and the Puritans, they loved their flocks so much. They didn't leave them very easily. Today you've got these ministers who jump around every four or five years to another church. I'm not saying God... I'll call you after four or five years to another church. Not saying that. 
But there are many advantages to a long-term ministry. You become a father among your people. You know the children. You know the grandchildren. They're dear to you. You love them as their own, your own family. And they love you. And they're ready to receive the word from you. What a blessing that is. You know, when people listen to you preach, it's like a filter in their mind. And the word comes through everything they know about you. And if they can have real respect for you, and they know that our, our pastor is a man of God, there's so much more ready reception of the word as it comes to them. Oh, God, help me to be more holy. Oh, God, help me to be more prayerful. In Acts 6, verse 4, half, half of the minister's duty is poured into that word prayer. They established deacons so men could give themselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. Oh, my dear brother, are you praying for every family in your church? Are you taking the church directory and praying for them one by one according to what you know? This is your duty. This is your calling. You're to love these sheep. You're to pray for these sheep. You don't just pray that you have a good sermon. Puritans used to say, a minister should go from his knees to the sermon. And from his sermon back to his knees to pray that the sermon would not be taken away by the devil who would come take away the seed of the word. You've heard the story of Robert Murray McShane. A fellow minister came to visit him and wanted to know the secret of his success. And McShane was gone. So he told the janitor, and the janitor, or the sexton, they called it at that time, said, oh, I can tell you the secret of his success. Follow me. Took him into McShane's study. He said, spread out your arms. Cry out to God Almighty with tears. Now come follow me. The man followed him. He says, go into the sanctuary. Stand on his pulpit. Spread out your arms. And cry out to God Almighty with tears. See, and the whole point of the janitor was, McShane was as holy in private as he was on the pulpit. He was the real thing. He was a real pastor, a real preacher. So, an experiential preacher is, is a man who's passionate, passionate about the truth, passionate for the well-being of the souls of his people, a man who's prayerful, a man who cannot live without seeing the salvation of those in front of him. He's a man who's authentic. He's not a fake. He loves the truth. He, he, he understands John Bengel's famous statement, apply thyself wholly to the text, and the substance of the text apply wholly to thyself. He's a man of godly piety, a man who grows in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the man. This is the kind of man we need today. And finally, he's a decreasing man. Decreasing himself. He's a man who says, Jesus must increase, like John the Baptist, but I must decrease. 
My calling is to deny myself, take up the crosses of my flock, and follow Christ, and live, live, says Spurgeon, with the sweet feeling of self-annihilation, that Jesus may be all in your ministry. An experiential preacher is a prioritized preacher. The call to the ministry weighs heavy upon him. It's a beautiful call. It's a serious call. It's an overwhelming call. And he puts priority on preaching. He puts priority on pastoral work. He loves to be in the flock. He loves to bring the word to the flock. He's passionate in his love for God and for men. Pray God that we may be experiential preachers like our forefathers who really live the life for whom preaching, pastoring was not a job. It was a vocation in which we know that on the day of judgment our flock or flocks will give an account of us whether we have been faithful men of God and freed, freed ourselves from the blood of our hearers and loved them with passion. And we will give an account of our flocks how they have responded to the preaching of the word of God. I charge you therefore by the Lord Jesus Christ preach the word in season and out of season. And rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Be faithful, men of God, experiential preachers from the heart to the heart of the truths of God, the whole counsel of God, for the whole heart of the sinner and the saint. And then trust that out of sheer superbounding grace the Lord Jesus will say to you on the judgment day well done thou good and faithful servant enter into the joy of thy Lord let's pray Gracious God, we're so far from where we ought to be. Humble us. Don't cast us away. Bear with us. Move us. Work with thy spirit in us that we would just love thee and love thy word and love preaching it, and love the souls of our hearers with all that is within us. And speak from mind to mind, <coughs> and soul to soul, the wonderful work of God, applying, discriminating, leading, directing our hearers, in the narrow path to life everlasting.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.